Amen. You can be uh, seated, and I'll dismiss our uh, school-age kids to head to the back. Let me see, who are they going with today? Don't go with any strange. No, <laughs> the McKenzie's are back there. And the Phillips, okay. Must be joke day. <laughs> Ellie always comes home with a joke. The joke of the day when the Phillips teaching is pretty great. I'd invite you to open to uh, Mark chapter 4, if you brought your Bible with you, and we're going to read in Mark 4, and we're going to read all of Mark 5. I know it might be a lot, we'll get through it. Um, I don't really know when it started, but uh, we have this little routine in my house where... um, I'm normally up first and uh, reading on the couch, and when one of the kids uh, gets up, typically it's uh, Claire first, since school has started, a lot of times it's Hudson first, but uh, they'll come in and I'll put the book down, they'll crawl up in my lap, and I ask them if they slept well, most of the time they say yes, and then I ask them, what'd you dream about? And I don't think they remember their dreams, but it's kind of routine that they just mention something nostalgic and favorable for them. For the most part, with the girls, they dream, they say, about the beach. And our family loves the beach, and we love to go to the beach, so they dream about the beach. Um, Hudson dreams about either McDonald's. Um, Yesterday, he wore a uh, yellow shirt and red shorts and said he was a McDonald's worker. Um, Cute. Uh, or the mushroom pool, or just uh, all kind of things. So um, this little bit of nostalgia. And then I sit for a moment, and it's almost every day, and I savor that little moment from those kids talking about these nostalgic things that they love and that makes their heart feel warm. And I, if I'm not careful, I let a little fear creep into my heart because it's not always going to be just, you know, McDonald's and the, and the beaches, right, that's One of the hardest things as a parent is to prepare your kids for disappointment, for difficulty. Um, I feel like that's what's been going on in my house um, this week as we've been watching the hurricane, as we've talked to pastors down in Houston that have just lost everything and some of their churches have nothing. I talked to one pastor, 90% of his congregants, you know, their houses flooded and then all three of the church buildings flooded and They've got just very minimal flood insurance and on and on. And my heart is just so heavy. And then I'm watching this storm in the Atlantic. And uh, we were set to go start Proverbs series today. But I want to postpone that one more week. Um, we've postponed that Proverbs series like eight times. So maybe we'll get to it next week. I want to remind our body of a few things, our, our faith family, our church body, that it's not supposed to be this way. Sickness and cancer with the Schultzes and hurricanes and tornadoes and divorce and relational angst and the world's falling apart, this cursed world, thorns and hatred and racism and death. There's evidence all around us of this chaos, and this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Jesus has come to rescue the world from all of this chaos of sin and Satan and suffering and even death. The plot line of Scripture, beginning in Genesis, was that God created life and order and beauty. And he stepped away from it and he said, this is good, this is very good, tone may own, this is very good, he says. There's evidence all around us, glimpses 
of the goodness of God made and then even more evidence of the brokenness within it. As God created it, everything was the way it was supposed to be for a time. I love this part when we read the Jesus Storybook Bible over and over in our home and we read the part about God creating and on this day he created this and we talk about the birds and the oceans and the animals and we ask my kids what their favorite animals are and we see all this beauty that God created and I know what's coming. I don't even want to turn the page because then the the great sin, the fall of mankind is on the next page. I want to savor this beauty that God created, but we turn the page because that's reality. Adam and Eve, our first parents, chose sin. They chose to side with themselves and their own thinking, and they sinned against this great and loving Father God. And then all of created order began in that very moment to break apart, to break down. All of the beauty became distorted and twisted and fractured. This beautiful thing that God had made and labeled very good became broken. We see immediately that Adam and Eve began to hide from God. And then the next thing, they began to blame each other. Their own marriage relationship began to break down. And not just their marriage relationship, what it caused to suffer, but even other relationships. We see even their kids, so much so that their first son, Cain, killed their son, Abel. Sin distorted human relationships, and even still does today. Sin brings the stench of death upon everything that it nears, everything. More than that, even in the passage of Scripture we read, Scripture says that creation itself is under a curse, and it groans to be liberated from this curse. The very atmosphere and the clouds and rocks and trees and even dirt groaning to be liberated from this curse of sin. So Satan, through sin, has thrown the world into complete chaos. We've seen it right up close this week as a faith family with Nathan Wesson's dad and the Schultzes getting devastating news. And we got a hurricane hitting Florida even as I speak. And one that just came through and got another one in the Gulf. Like it's just devastation and chaos everywhere we look. Murder rates are up higher than ever. Divorce rates up higher than ever. This is what chaos looks like. But Genesis 3, even after the sin of Adam and Eve, speaks of a promised seed that would come. One who would come and restore what's been marred. One who would upright what's been knocked down. One who would remake what's been destroyed. Oh, even more than that, he would conquer our greatest enemy the world has ever seen, that being death. And his kingdom will come. This great King Jesus, his will will be done. And when that happens, the usurper Satan will be dethroned and Jesus will rule with a rod of iron as the king of kings and no one will be able to stop him. And at that time, the sons and daughters of God will be revealed and we will reign with him in this renewed and this perfect world. The book of Revelation is basically the Lord's promise that he is making all things new. Second Peter 3 says that God will create a new heavens and a new earth in which, in which righteousness will dwell. We've seen that partially, but we've not seen it fully. And in this space between, we groan. Just as creation groans, we groan. Sometimes it's all we can do. I grieve for my father who passed away a few months ago. I think about Hudson not having very many memories of him, and I groan. And I watch the hurricane spinning in the gulf. Again, I groan, nothing I can do. I get the phone call from Travis last week, and my soul groans. 
But Jesus isn't unaware of this. It was into this very chaotic world that God made flesh. Jesus, the Son of Man, enters. And we see a glimpse of this in Mark chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And I think this will be good for us. I think it'll be good for, it was so good for my soul this week to read this. And a little aside here that may be a warning. That if we aren't careful, we are tempted to set our hopes on this old world. We want to plant deep, deep roots in this old world. When this world is not really our home, it's passing away. Some of us are tempted to set our hopes on the stuff we possess or the life we live in arrogance because we have good health or good fortune or good kids. And then one phone call shatters our world. But suffering has a way of waking us up to reality, to what's real. Of reminding us of all the fluff in this life is passing away and this week has sure done that to me. But again, Mark 4 and 5 give us this glimpse of what the world is destined for. The kind of world that is coming. It's a preview or foretaste of the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. And today I want us as a faith family to taste it a little bit. To get a glimpse and to be encouraged. Into this chaotic world. Jesus steps in and he starts his ministry. And immediately as the gospel writer Mark records it, he began to... Bring the kingdom of God. And we see these glimpses of him healing a man with a withered hand. And we see him speaking truth in the midst of chaos, bringing order into chaos. And then maybe to me the most incredible story is in, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 35. Let's start there. You've heard this story before, and we're going to kind of tie this and then what happens in Mark 5 together. It says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. They're headed to the Decapolis, which we don't have time to get into, but these were the 10 cities that, that were untouchable. No one ever wanted to go to these forsaken cities, but Jesus, in the midst of his compassion and love, says, you know what, let's go to the other side. Let's go to this forbidden place. He left the crowd They took him with uh, them in a boat just as he was. And other boats were with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. I love that picture of Jesus. Like, he's not flustered here. He's asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, These are his disciples, Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. I was talking about this very passage with Claire yesterday, that if Jesus was on a boat... And Hurricane Irma is headed right through. Oh, yeah, shh. And it stops. Can you imagine? Those Sunday afternoons, I like to sleep. I turn the golf channel on. I like to put my feet up, and I like to sleep. And the kids know they can do whatever they want as long as they don't wake Dad up. That's just kind of the rule. And every once in a while, my middle child gets a little loud and excited. And I'll say from the couch, shh. And then all three kids will say it in harmony, shh. Dad's about to put us to work if he wakes up. Let's, let's, let's bring it down a notch. And in the same way, we see Jesus, this is the craziest thing, sleeping. Disciples come and wake him up. 
and it stops. We see the complete authority of Jesus as he speaks into this storm, as we see the kingdom of God coming again truly but not fully. We see this glimpse like Nolan Ryan playing with, uh, you know, some coach pitch with some seven or eight-year-olds, and he's just lobbing it up there, but every once in a while, Nolan Ryan in his power, in his prime, I don't know if he could do it anymore, would just hum a 99-mile-an-hour fastball past them. And in that moment, they would, those seven or eight-year-olds would stand back saying, oh my goodness, what just happened? And in the same way, this is the disciples. They're living life with Jesus. They're following in ministry. They're seeing him do these 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 crazy things and then it's just one crazier thing after another he actually speaks to this incredible storm and it obeys him i love the and i i feel like mark man taking a little liberty when he rephrased uh what they said there may have been some expletives in there who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him oh, oh it gets better let's jump in chapter five Mark stacking these things up so we can see what the kingdom of God looks like through the person of Jesus. They came to the other side, to the Sea of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. That's until Jesus shows up in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Some scholars think there may have been as many as two or three thousand demons in this man. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out. And entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into a sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw this demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Of course they were. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus did not permit him, but said, go to your home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. We see this incredible story. We see the, not just the complete authority of Jesus as he speaks to these storms, but this, uh, this compassionate authority of King Jesus. 
He cast out a demon, restoring this man who was crazy and out of his mind, breaking chains. Verse 4 said, not even anyone could subdue him. And Jesus shows up and he rescues him and fully restores this man. We see him clothed in his right mind. The man once was crazy, cutting himself with, with rocks, living in the tombs, completely alienated from his friends or where he came from, from his family. Chaotic. And the power of Jesus brings order. This man is no longer alienated, not alienated from God, not alienated from his home or from his friends. His home was a graveyard until Jesus shows up and heals him. And now he's able to go back to his friends and his family and share what God has done for him. Jesus bringing order into what was chaos. And Jesus has come to rescue us, right? Jesus' power to cast out demons is just a demonstration that a greater kingdom is present with a greater king who can forgive us and free us and make us new. He binds the strong man. He overcomes our enemy. We see the compassionate authority of King Jesus. But even more, let's go to the next story. This compassionate authority of Jesus is so evident. Let's look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And this great crowd followed him, thronged about him. If you can imagine thousands of people around Jesus hearing all the stories of what he's done. He's pushing his way through them. And there was a woman in verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Again, can you imagine having this physical issue? Luke, a physician, talks about it in a little more detail, saying the doctors could do nothing, that she had exhausted all of her resources for over a decade, that she had struggled with this. And in that time, with the Levitical law, if a woman on her menstrual cycle could not be parked, couldn't go to the temple. Could, they had to even be outside the city. There was a place that they had to go. And she was just alienated from God and from her friends and from her family. As a matter of fact, if anyone would have recognized her in this crowd, it could have meant death for her. But she didn't care. She had one hope in her mind, and that hope was Jesus. And so she pressed through. She says again in verse 28, even if I touch his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately she was made well. In verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples thought he was a little crazy. He said to him, you see the crowd? They're all over you. You say, who touched me? 
And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She didn't know it yet, but she had no need to be fearful or to tremble. But you get it, a man with that much power. That's someone you, you fear, but she didn't know this was the greatest man. This was the God-man, this kind and generous Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Just the intimate language that Jesus used here. She had not been touched probably in 12 years. She was afflicted. She was sent outside the city. And Jesus uses this language of intimacy of daughter. He restores her relationally. He restores her spiritually. He restores her physically. Jesus brings order into what was chaos. He told her to go in shalom. That means peace or wholeness. Jesus turning chaos into order. He restores her. He heals her. But remember, he's on his way to Jairus' house. His daughter was sick. On her deathbed. Verse 35, things get worse before they get better. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. I imagine what the rest of that trip is like, Jarius knowing he's headed home to a daughter who has passed away. As a dad of daughters, I can just even imagine what, what that would even that would be like. Don't fear, only believe. Saying that word over, that phrase over and over in my head, thinking as Jesus, as he lost it, that it's too late, this is not going to happen now. It says in verse 37, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. This is Jairus' house. And Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. In this day, they would actually have professional mourners. They would come to the house quickly. They would be st stayed outside the house in case something like death would happen. They would immediately make this loud commotion. In verse 39, and Jesus had entered. He said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? His child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Taught them right. He put them all outside. I love that. <laughs> well, you ain't going to see this. He put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with them. And they went in where the child was. Sure, grief filling that house, taking her by the hand. He said, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome. Yeah, understated. They were immediately overcome in amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. This might be my favorite part of the story. He told him to give her something to eat. That's, that sounds great. Because what else do you want to do when you come back from the dead but eat something? Jesus even steps into the chaos of death and he brings restoration. And all of these, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the greater king. 
And his very presence is bringing restoration to those shattered and broken lives. And he's going to do it fully one day. He's doing it truly now and it seems partially to some of us. And we still see chaos and we still see the craziness of this world and we still hurt and we're overwhelmed and we worry and we're stressed out and we see relational conflict building. We see the creation itself groaning. But Jesus is going to come and he is going to restore everything one day. This is the broader picture that Mark is trying to weave together. There's two kingdoms in conflict here. One of a usurper king who's captured people and is keeping them in bondage to sin and inflicting suffering and leading them to eternal alienation from God. And there's the other king, Jesus, who triumphs over the evil king and liberates the captives, reconciling them to God and freeing them to live a new life that beforehand was not possible. This is what spiritual warfare is, us living in this battle between light and darkness. But we're reminded here that Jesus is working. There are rumors of the coming kingdom. There are tremors of how things are supposed to be. We see a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. And I want you to notice two things that should encourage you. One is that Jesus has the last and loudest word. Jesus has the last and the loudest word. And if you're in a circumstance like some of the people we've talked about even today, sometimes the circumstances feel overwhelming. These disciples literally on a boat that's about to fill up with water and crash. But Jesus has the last and loudest word into the wind. He speaks and order comes. To the demoniac who couldn't even control his own body, he had to live in the tombs, was cutting himself. No one could even subdue him with chains. Jesus speaks and he brings order into the chaos. A man whose family thought that he must have just gone crazy. There's nothing we can do. We've lost all hope. And then Jesus shows up and brings order in the midst of chaos. To the lady with the ongoing medical issue, bleeding, None of the doctors could do anything. She'd spend her fortune to try to fix herself. And Jesus speaks and he restores her and he brings order into what was chaos. And then this final picture entering to the house of Jairus, he speaks and Talitha Kum, little girl, arrives. And Jesus wasn't through dealing with death either. Again and again through the gospel of Mark and the other gospels record, Jesus continually points to the cross where he's headed. He said of himself that he had set his face like flint and head to Jerusalem. He knew what awaited for him there. In the garden before the cross was there, the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying that maybe this bitter cup would pass. But even so, he says, Lord, your will and not mine. Jesus knows he has to go to the cross where Satan will be rendered powerless and Jesus would win salvation for all that would believe in him and he defeats Satan by his cross, the cross of Jesus. And because of that, we are forgiven and reconciled to the Father by the cross. We've been brought to God's side and Satan no longer has dominion or claim over our lives. We're free from the controlling power of sin and Satan free from condemnation, Romans tells us. We are made new with a new capacity to live the life that God intended us to live. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. 
I hope that encourages your heart. One, because Jesus has the last and loudest word. But two, because our circumstances do not have ultimate significance. They don't have ultimate significance. Sure, our circumstances are real. And we all get bloodied and we beat and beat up in this world. We all experience pain and suffering and loss and relational strife. We're easily overwhelmed with the brokenness of this world, but that heaviness should force us back to Jesus again and again, and we should cry out with the saints that have gone on before us, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We, like all creation, long for Jesus to come and bring full restoration of the broken. It's what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18 Patrick read in the scripture reading time, for I consider that all the sufferings of this present time, and you can read the list in Corinthians of everything that Paul had suffered, all the sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Maybe you have a pen, you would underline it in your Bible or highlight it in the app you're using. The creation waits, I love that, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That phrase, eager longing. Maybe your translation says earnest expectation. It's this picture of standing on your tiptoes, stretching your neck as far as you possibly can in order to see what's on the other side. My kids still do that. In our pantry, we put the snacks at the top. And little Hudson, he'll take a chair, set it in there, and then he'll put a stool on top of the chair. Then he'll hang, like on one hand, trying to get to the fruit snacks. Limited fruit snacks at our house. They're at the very top. Even yesterday, I walked in there and saw him climbing to the top. And he said, Dad, can you pick me up? Can you pick me up? What do you want, son? He's pointing to the top. Can you pick me up? It's this picture of on your tiptoes, neck stretched out, reaching for the very thing that you can't get your hands on. That's what this word picture of eager longing or earnest expectation really means. Paul is saying that the whole world is so full of expectation concerning the return of Jesus and the order that he will bring into the chaos and the glory that will be unleashed that that even creation can hardly contain itself. It's on its tiptoes with anticipation saying Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he's going to restore all of this and no more hurricanes or tornadoes or tears or suffering or cancer or deathbeds. There'll be no more of that because King Jesus is coming back And he's going to bring in fullness what he's already truly brought us in glimpses. But not just creation. Read the next part of that with me in verse 23. Paul's saying, don't just look at the trees. In verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, capital S, their Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we have hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
My kid's asking me this. We tell them all the time, you get better be ready, Jesus, Jesus might be coming back today. And I believe that, and they ask, well, why hasn't he come back already? Well, I'm not sure. He said he's tarrying so that more people might be added to the family of God and in his infinite understanding of time and space, that he'll come when the time is right. And our job is to wait eagerly with patience. Our hope is in Jesus, and he's coming back. Good Friday was tragic. The very Son of God died a gruesome death in my place. But for us, Sunday, Saturday was probably uh, felt worse. Just the darkness all around us, the pain and grief. Jesus was dead, but Sunday came, and the resurrection really happened. This past week for me felt a lot like Saturday. Grief and groaning. But Sunday is coming, and I know it. And I've pushed all my chips into the center of the table knowing that Sunday is certainly coming. And there's no greater help for us today, church, than to remember that, to make the choice to live on our spiritual tiptoes, setting our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. The future is where we must focus, not the past. Levi Lusco in his book, Through the Eyes of a Lion, says this, when your heart is properly focused on the things that are to come instead of paralyzed by the hard things and the horrible things you have to handle every day, then and only then you are postured to be effective in the present. Church, earth is not our home. And even the most successful of you in here barring the return of Jesus quickly, will end up in a graveyard somewhere because the earth is not our home. Heaven is. And when we arrive on that distant shore, we won't have to groan anymore. We'll be home. I'm going to pray for us in a minute. We're going to participate in communion, at least you're invited to. And this is one of those great reminders that we have weekly as part of our service to remember that this earth is not our home and that Jesus is certainly one day coming again and he was going to restore everything. And what we see partially through the life of Jesus and even the Holy Spirit working through the people of God today, that we're seeing the kingdom of God come. Yes, we are. We're seeing it come truly, but not yet fully. And we await and we cry out with the saints before us, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let me pray for us and our communion service will come. Maybe you just need to spend some time talking to God right where you're at. We don't have a formal invitation here. I will be standing in the back if you'd like to pray. But maybe you, like so many others, you just, you've set your focus on the wrong thing. Like Paul says, we've got to set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are here. This whole world is broken and falling apart. Even our own bodies are wasting away. We're not as agile or healthy as we used to be. 
It's just a reminder that this earth is not our home, but heaven is. Maybe today it's a shift in your focus from the things around you to the maker of everything. Maybe some of you aren't part of God's kingdom and you feel like you're on the outside looking in this morning. You don't know what it's like to have this resurrection power at work in your life even now. And you might say, I need to take that step and cross this line of faith and place my faith and trust in Jesus. And I invite you to do that this morning. Scripture says today's a day of salvation. Let's not put it off another day. I'd be glad to speak with you in the back or you could write that on your card. And maybe our posture this morning is just to weep with those who are struggling. And we do pray for healing. And me and my family and our home, we've been praying all week that the the great King Lord Jesus would just blow into this storm and it would just stop. To my knowledge, that has not happened and we trust God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for you not just being an angry coach in the sky, sends out, barks orders at us, but you loved us to such an extent that you sent Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And that he's our great high priest now and that, that he, he understands the struggle that we face on a daily basis. We have a sympathetic high priest who's our advocate before you right now. Father God, we, we thank you for that. We thank you that your kindness is what leads us to repentance. And if I can confess as a pastor of your people this morning, it's so easy to get focused on what's around me, on the present and not keeping my eyes focused on the future. I repent of that. I ask you to work powerfully in and through me and in and through your people. Where would you do a work in us today? Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The communion servers are here on either side, and you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. You just, um, Scripture says you've got to be part of um, the Church of Christ, His church, part of His bride, which means you've trusted Jesus and placed your faith in Him and desire to live a life of obedience. And if that's you, I just encourage you to take a little time to pray and then come when you're ready. And if that's not you, we ask you just sit this one out and maybe think about what it would look like to place your faith and trust in Him. Church, I'll encourage you with this. One of the greatest things that we can do is pray. For those that are hurting, for those that are suffering, and we can work. We can start repairing the fabric of creation that is falling apart. We can meet felt needs. We can give cups of cold water. We can give our money and send missionaries around the world. We can go ourselves. you ask God what he has in store for you. Come when you're ready.